And so in Colossians 1.12, we finished up and, and uh, last week as we looked at the prayer, we, we see that Paul in his prayer was giving thanks to the Father who now has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Remember that? He's taken us out of darkness and transferred us, translated us into the son of his love, his beloved son. And that's where we are. But how is it that all of a sudden we can come to the Father and have all of these blessings? It's because of Jesus. This is the who that we're going to be talking about today, who's done all of this for us. He's the door. And he opened that door that we could go through that door unto the Father. And so the Father has given us his Son as our Redeemer, the one who bought us out of slavery. Or if you were captured uh, militarily and you're let go from that military prison camp, this is that word, Redeemer. And so we come today to really look at Jesus. Jesus is all. Jesus is is superior above all things, the preeminent one. So we come this morning to Colossians 1, verse 15 through 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. So we take a look now at particular verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Greek word here is icon, and we get our word icon from it. Now, back before the computer days when I was preaching, we barely had fax machines. I remember when those came out, we're like, this can't be. It's like being on Star Trek, you know? Um, but computers, you know, but now I can just simply say an icon, and you know what that is, or an app. So you, you push on the app on your cell phone or your computer, and up comes all the reality of what that app stands for, right? So if I push on the, the Nike app or the icon, the Nike icon, it'll take me and show me all the, the company of, of, Nikon, of, the, of Nike. I can see all of the shoes they're selling. I can contact them. I can see their addresses. I, I can communicate with them. So this word here is being used because in Jesus is the image perfectly, not similarly, not similarly, but perfectly of the Father. Now, it's interesting because there is another word in the Greek that Paul could have used, and that is uh, homoema. And that word is one like, similar to but it's not exact. Okay, so if you said, man, I, I need $20. Brian, can I use your copier? And you put a $20 bill on the copy machine and turn it over, turn the paper over and get the backside printed and you're cutting it out. Does anybody believe that will work? <laughs> 
But it's similar. Yeah, but it's not the exact replica, is it? And so this is what we're talking about. The word icon is a perfect likeness. And literally, it's the same word used when Jesus says, hey, show me the coin. And he said, whose who's image is on that coin? He said, Caesar's. Then that weight and that value of that coin was originally Caesar's. To Caesar, it should be returned. You look in a mirror. That's another idea. You're looking at yourself, the actual person. And so Paul specifically used the word icon to let us know this is an identical image of God the Father. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, it tells us, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, there it is, should shine on you. So he is saying the image of God is in Christ. In Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3, listen to this. God, who at various times and various ways spoke to times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now listen to verse 3. Who being in the brightness of his glory, Jesus, and the expressed image of his person. This word expressed image is actually the word character. And the word character is where we get our word character from. The word character literally means to cut deeply into with something harder. So if you had a piece of metal and you wanted to scratch your name in it, you need something that's more dense than the metal you're scratching into. But if you would, Jesus is exactly what you would see if you saw the Father. They expressed exact character, nature, substance. There's commentary on this says, um, the exact expression of anything or person, precise reproduction in every respect. UBS lexicon says exact likeness, full expression. Lydon in his commentary, a Greek scholar, the son is both personally distinct from and yet literally equal to God the Father. So the idea here is, is that the son possesses all the attributes of deity in the same way the father does. Jesus said this plainly, specifically in John 14, verse 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, remember Philip said, um, Show us the Father, and that will suffice. And, and Jesus answered him by saying, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father's in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And else believe me for the sakes of the works themselves. So Jesus says, there is nothing lacking. If you want to see the total nature of God, the substance of God, the, the personality of God, what God loves, what God hates, 
then you will see it perfectly in Jesus. There's nothing lacking in nature, nothing lacking in substance, no personality difference, no um, different opinions on any area. Now, just to take a, a, a moment here, in the Old Testament, we learn very clearly we have one God. This, as a matter of fact, it's called the Shema, but it is, if you would, the verse the Jews use for their doctrine above all else. This is the Jewish confession, and it's Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So how many gods do we have? Count them up. One. <laughs> A monotheistic religion where there is one God and only one God. However, when you look into this, you discover that God is not one singular part, but he actually has more than one part. We find this in the Shema. First of all, the word God. It's Elohim. This is the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now, why that's interesting is clearly in the Hebrew, it's plural for God. El is singular, Ella is two, but Elohim is three or more. So right from the beginning, we, we begin to understand as God reveals himself that he is more than one part as one whole. And then we see the very next thing where he says, the, the Lord is one. This is the word ikad, which is a compound unity, rather than the word yakid, which is a singular unity. So if I have one fork, that's, yak, that's a yakid. But if I have an engine in a car with many moving parts, that's ikad. And so it's telling us that God, who is one, has three or more Elohim, and now we realize moving parts. That who God is, this is who he is, this is his nature, God is God. That this is exactly what we're going to see. For example, in Genesis 22:24, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, ikad. The two are one. But we know that the man is individual, the wife is individual, but God says when they are married, they are as one. This is how we see the word God. Now, there was a guy way back in the beginning uh, of, the, of the early church, right around 300 or so A.D. His name was Arian, A-R-I-A-N. But I think his name should have been spelled Arian, E-R-R-O-R, because -R -R. <laughs> this guy was an heir. But he taught that the Father alone was God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were lesser, that there is only one God. It's the Jehovah Witness doctrine of today. And in response, we 
saw, see the Nicene Creed. Now listen to what this says, written in 325 AD. We believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and we believe the Holy Ghost, who is the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeded from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And like I said, this is a sort of unusual message today. It's in much more detail than normal. So if you're here for the first time going, man, uh, I, I feel like I am in a lecture, in a college class trying to get through this. I, I understand. But there are people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time who understand, get it. But if you've recently come to Christ, and, and uh, this is sort of a, a bit overwhelming. But hopefully, as you hear it, it, it will begin to tie the parts together. So I'm giving you all the pieces of the puzzle today, and hopefully you can put it together. The Westminster Confessional says this, there is but one living and true God. I love that. Let me say it again. There is but one living and true God. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, one substance, one power, one eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is one, neither begotten or proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. This is how God reveals himself. This is just who he is. And the Lord our God is one Lord, but in three persons. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son. The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. That and that order and that authority. And so God revealed himself. And, and you can, in essence, take it or leave it. But this is who he is. He's always been and he will always be. It's his bat. It's his ball. It's his game. He invented it. Um, and there's just that point where you come and say, God, I wish you were less confusing. Or God, I wish, I wish you could be something that my mind could understand and, and grasp. But then he wouldn't be God, right? If, I, if you're finite and you could understand the infinite, then either you're infinite or the other guy's not infinite, right? I mean, there just comes a point where you realize, of course, I mean, the most our puny little human minds can grasp is nowhere near what we need to understand God. So we take the bits and the pieces that God has given us in his word, and this is what we know about God. No more, no less. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus explains this. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. This word begotten, it means unique, only no other, one of one kind. The only time this word begotten is used in the New Testament, it's referring to Jesus. It's never referring to anyone else but Jesus. Well, let's go to verse 15 now. The second part here. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So now we look at the invisible God, or literally, in the Greek, it has more understanding than just visible, not visible. It's unknowable. He's invisible, and to our human mind, our senses, seeing, hearing, touching, it would never be enough to actually know God intimately. And so he's invisible in, in the sense that he is incorporeal, not corporeal. We are all humans, corporeal. We have bodies, but we learn in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. Peake says this in his commentary, God is invisible, which does not merely mean that he cannot be seen by our bodily eye, but that he is unknowable. But in the exalted Christ, the unknowable God becomes known. Moses learned, no one can look on the face of God and live. It can't be done. In Romans 1, 19 and 20, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. These are those who are rejecting God as creator. He's shown it to them since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So there are general revelations that there is a God, right? The, the little child gets to the place going, where did you and mom come from, dad? Uh, we came from our parents. Remember grandma and grandpa? Where did, they, where did they come from? They came from their parents. Uh, where did they come from? Uh, well, and they'll just keep asking. And you finally get back and, and logically try to blow their mind to say, yes, there was one unmoved mover. There was one uncreated being. There was one at the beginning, God, and there was nothing before him. Now, we're here, right? If we exist, we have to be able to ask the question, do I exist? And if you can ask the question, do I exist? You have to exist. If you don't exist, you don't ask the question, do I exist? So you exist. These are, these are proofs that, that, they can't, that they cannot be denied. They're immutable facts. So we're here, and this world is so intricate. I mean, you, you see engineers trying to maintain a power plant. <laughs> it takes thousands of them to, to make sure it's not too hot, not too cold. Just, well, this planet is incredible. We know all the suns in our galaxy are burning out. We can speed that up and go back in time and speed up the sun being hotter and hotter. And we realize you, you can't go much more than a few thousand years and the sun would be too hot for there to be life on earth. The moon is exactly where it's at. Take it a little further out. The entire ocean cover the earth, two miles of water. You bring the moon just a little bit closer and continual tidal waves covering the earth nonstop. And the distance of the moon from the sun and et cetera, et cetera. The, the oxygen-nitrogen balance here. That little tiny factory in your finger called a fingernail. When you look at the incredible design, there either was a who or a what? 
And the idea of a what creating such incredible design is ridiculous. Nobody would drive by a tractor in a field going, wow, that must have taken a million years to evolve there. Nobody does that. When you see something designed, intricate, with many moving parts, you know a designer in an intelligent brain did that. So we realize by general revelation, there has to be a God. He's a God of order. He's a God of power. He's a God of beauty. He's a God of love. Look at us and the ability in us, born into this world with a nature that loves and wants to be loved. It's because we're made in the image of God. And man will stand before God with no excuse by these general revelations. But the general revelation will not bring us into salvation. General revelation won't help us to know how to be forgiven, how to have certainty in our future. Do you know how to have eternal life? Can you have eternal life? How would I get to eternal life? We, through creation, could never know these things. God had to bring it. So the invisible God, the unknowable God, who is only spirit, now we can know him. We know he exists and our hearts seek him, but yet it's not sufficient. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in approachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Now we are going to learn that this unknowable God, who's invisible to our senses, has become known to us by the Son, the one who has created all things and is in control of all things, and unto and for all things have been made. So we come to this phrase, the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we read it in English, it sounds like he was the firstborn in creation. So it, 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 just by reading in English, it sounds like Jesus was the first of all the creation. God created Jesus, and he's the first one created. But that is not what this word means. And I'm going to show you through the Bible how it's been used and why it's understood differently. The Greek word, prototokos, it speaks of preeminence. The number one person, <laughs> there is none higher than him. So Paul is using this of Jesus with the idea in mind. He's before everything that was created and supremely different in order of all created things. It's a, not firstborn as the oldest child or the first thing created, but in priority and time and supremacy and rank, supremacy and greatness, per, per, um, supremacy and quality. So Paul used this firstborn in prototokos. He could have easily used another word if he wanted to say the first one created. Um, and that is prototysis. Prototykos, if, if you've 
been here more than one Sunday, you know I don't usually go into all these Greek words. But it's important because of those who are heretics trying to say the opposite of this. I just want you to know there is a word, prototysis, that Paul could have used that literally means the first one created. He does not use that word in the Greek. We only have one word for firstborn. The Greeks had two words for firstborn. And the word prototokos is meaning the first one in supremacy, but it is the word firstborn. And so it gives us a difficulty in the English unless you know that. So Paul could have easily used a word that meant the first one born. But Paul never uses prototysis for relating to Christ in the entire New Testament. How is this word used? Is it word, used word for the first one born? Yes, it is. But it has a far ranger meaning, a more important meaning. In the Old Testament, for example, you might remember when Jacob is blessing all of his children and Joseph, he blesses his kids, Jacob's grandkids. Now, Manasseh was the oldest. So when Joseph brought them to Jacob, he put Manasseh under Jacob's right hand. Ephraim was the second born. So Joseph brings to Jacob Ephraim on Jacob's left hand. But as they're praying, Joseph opens his eyes and his dad has crossed his arms doing this. <laughs> and Joseph was very unhappy. And he said, no, father, Manasseh is the firstborn. And he said, yep, he's going to be a blessed young man, but he is not going to be blessed to the degree Ephraim is going to be, even though he's not the firstborn. And later in Jeremiah 31.9, he actually says that, Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, was Jeremiah mixed up, made a blunder, not knowing the Bible well enough? No. It's exactly how the word firstborn is used. He's the preeminent one. He is greater in quality, greater in, in power, greater. Uh, and indeed, Ephraim was the, great, the, the largest tribe of all of Israel. Remember David, he was the youngest son, right? And his dad said, hey, choose one of these older boys to be the king. But later in Psalms 89, verse 27, sorry, I just put verse 27 in there because... Um, the verses before it clearly talk about David, God speaking of David. But he says this of David, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now we know Jacob was a secondborn. Esau was, was sec, Esau was first, Jacob was second. But yet in Exodus 4.22, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel, Jacob, is my firstborn. Israel is the greatest of all the nations. So he would be the top ranking of all the nations in the world, even greater than the nation of Egypt. And he says specifically, he's the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the highest ranking above creation over, sovereignly reigning over all of creation. Now we're going to see this word firstborn again in just a minute, and it'll become even more clear. It cannot re be referring to anything other than in rank and superiority. 
In Colossians 1.16, though, let's go there for a moment. But by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. For by him all things have been created. Jesus is the creator. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and what? The word was God. In the beginning, Genesis 1, it says, and God spoke and created the first day, the second day, the third day. Now we learn in John 1, the one who actually spoke the word was the second person of the Trinity, the Son. In John 1, 3, it says, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In Hebrews 1, 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, listen, through whom also he made the worlds. So all things have been created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The entire universe, material, immaterial, physical, spiritual, all the things we can see and even things we can't see. He made them all. And whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, there's all kinds of words used here. So whether they're the satanic angels that followed Lucifer, whether they're God's angels, whether the king of a nation or a mayor of a town, God reigns over all things. We're going to learn in Colossians 2.18 that they were worshiping angels. In Colossians 2.10 it says, You were complete in him who is the head, the highest ranking one, Jesus, over all principalities and powers. In Colossians 2.15, he's disarmed all principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. So whatever ranks the spirit may have, the angel may have, the demon may have, Jesus is greater than all of them, and ultimately all will answer to him. So all things were created through him now, he tells us. We're going to see here, if you add it up, to all things were created, through all things were created, and for all things were created with Christ. He is the creator. It's through him and for him that all things are created. So why is it making this clarification? Now, I haven't gone into this yet, but we are going to go into it. The Colossian church was being infiltrated by a group of Gnostics. And then some of the Gnostics actually taught Jesus was not God, but a spirit being. And Jesus didn't create all things, but somebody else did. Because the Gnostics believed that everything was material was evil. So God himself could not make anything material or he would be evil. So either Jesus is evil and did create all the matter, or Jesus is a divine spirit and he created a spiritual world, but not the matter. That was from an evil spirit. And, and so many of them actually did teach. Jesus was just an angel and Lucifer was an angel. And these two angels, one was good, one was bad. Sound familiar? Mormonism. And he is making it clear. Jesus is no angel. 
He is far above the angels. In Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did he, God the Father, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father, I'll be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. In Hebrews 1, 7 and 8, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and ministers of a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, listen to what the father says about the son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness, the scepter of your kingdom. So the father is saying, this is your throne, O God, forever and ever. So in Ephesians 1.21, Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority. In the future, every knee is going to bow to him and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. In 1 Peter 3.22, it makes it clear that all angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. And this verse ends by saying, and for him. We see this in Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and are created. I like the old King James. It says, instead of saying by, by your will, it says, for thy pleasure they are and were created. I think that's more accurate. For thy pleasure you created all these things. And in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him... All things consist. Jesus is eternal. Before anything existed, he has always been. In 1 John again, our Gospel of John 1, uh, once again, in verse 1 and 2 this time, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That is the definition. People say, oh, you know, this religion will help you be a God one day. You can, you know, get on your inner self and get your middle eye and, and hum and, and you, can, you can realize there's a God within you. Well, go look it up in the dictionary. To be God, you have always had to exist. You can't start existing and be a God. <laughs> if you start existing and then become a God, you're not a God. Whatever you are, you're not a God. Because God has always been, always been all-powerful. Nothing was created before him. He existed before all things. Now, just to let you know, any religion that says you're going to be living forever (laughs) someday, that is true. Those who don't receive the love of the truth, that don't humble themselves and confess they're a sinner, those who don't look to Jesus as Savior, the, the one who will take away all their sin and give them the gift of eternal life. They will spend eternity separated from God, along next to the devil and all the demons in hell. But those who put their faith by grace, trusting the gift of God is eternal life, they shall be with God for all of eternity, and we shall be righteous as Jesus is righteous. We will be called the sons of God for eternity. But we are humans, and we'll go to heaven, we'll always be humans. Jesus is God, he was God in human flesh, and when he ascends to heaven, he's God in human flesh, uh, throughout a resurrected human flesh for all of eternity. And so Jesus said to them, again, on this point, that he is God, he said to the Pharisees, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying, I existed before Abraham existed. And of course, he uses the name that God gave Moses. 
Whom shall I say sent me? I am the name of God. And they picked up stones to stone him. In John 5, 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also he said that God was his father. And in their understanding, Jesus saying, God is my father, he makes himself equal with God. Isaiah 41, 4, who has performed and done it, calling the generation from beginning, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I am the first, and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, 6, that says, the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, what? There is no God. In Isaiah 48, 12 and 13, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. And then listen to Jesus at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22, 13. Jesus speaking here says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end and the first and the last. Does that make it clear? Isaiah says only one can say I'm the first and the last. And that's God. And there is no other God but God. Yahweh, Yahshua, <laughs> yeah. And then Jesus says at the very end of the Bible, I am that first and last, it's me. And not only is he God over all creation, over all the principalities and powers, but he is also in him all things consist. The New American Standard says in, all, in Christ, all things hold together. He's the sustainer and the maintainer of all of creation. Interesting, scientifically, this is found true. And there are some scientists who have come to Christ over the fact that they cannot explain, no man can, why things are the way they are. For example, Carl K. Darrow. I have two articles, another one from D. Lee Chesternut, but I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to just read Carl K. Darrow, a physicist of the Bell AT&T Laboratories. This is what he says. Your grasp what this implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet, here they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. He is saying if you look at the atom, you got positive electrons, negative electrons, and there is no way the atom should hold together it should be, every atom in the universe should be an atomic blast. But yet you have these atoms, and there is some force holding that atom together that we cannot explain, and I'll tell you, we never will be explained. Now, when I was in high school, they called it the atomic glue. Uh, now they do not do that. No, 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 we don't call it that anymore. It doesn't sound very smart. Um, <laughs> 
they, saw, they say there's a strong nuclear force. But yet they cannot explain. And we know it's Christ. If Christ and his power and his being quit being interested in our universe, it would immediately explode. Isn't that what the Bible says? In the last days, everything will explode and melt into a fervent heat, and then God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Go more into that, but I won't. We're in verse 18. And he said, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. There it is. So he is the head of the church. All life comes from the head, right? Everything in the body is getting its leading from the brain. And that's how they're doing everything they do. Interesting, this word head can also be the beginning of the river, the the source of the beginning of the river. Jesus built the church. Jesus started the church. Jesus is the Lord of the church. It's to Jesus that we, as the body of Christ, are supposed to be emulating. And so in the beginning... This Greek word, in the beginning, again, this is a great translation, but if you look at the Greek word, it's arche. We get our word architect from it. It's better understood that who is the designer, the originator, but he also was the designer, and he's the one who originated, he's the one who built it, he's the one who did it all. And here's that word firstborn again. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, we know that Jesus wasn't the firstborn from the dead. He wasn't the first one. In the Old Testament, people were raised from the dead. Jesus, in his own ministry, raised people from the dead. So Jesus isn't the first one raised from the dead. But let me tell you something. He is the most important one who was raised from the dead, right? If Christ did not raise from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we would still all be in our sins. So Jesus is the preeminent one of all creation. Jesus is the preeminent one of the resurrection of the dead. Because he raised from the dead, we also shall raise from the dead. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. That in all things he may have preeminence. So it's not just the resurrection. It's not just the church. It's not just creation. But in all things, Jesus would be above all. The bottom line is this. Jesus is the one to have the first place in all things, in this life and in the age to come. He is the top ranking one of all that is seen and unseen in this age and in the age to come. We discover here And we put all three statements together. This is what we discover. Number one, Jesus has become the creator, the originator, the designer. Secondly, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. And thirdly, he is the goal of all creation. It's for him, for his good pleasure. That means for all his glory and purpose and will. In him, through him, for him. This is what we discover in him, through him, and for him. And now we come to the last verse in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness shall dwell. 
The first person of the Trinity, God the Father, who sent his only begotten Son because he loves us. It is now his pleasure. It is now his will. It is now his joy that in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead would dwell for not just now, but all of eternity. So let's understand this, guys. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus, because he loved us, it tells us, came into human flesh. He came into the virgin Mary. Mary is not the originator of God. That would make her God. She is the oven, if you would, <laughs> that Jesus was baked in. She is the, she's a human. Matter of fact, in, in Luke 1, she actually says of the Christ, of Jesus, he is my savior. She also, like all of us, needed a savior. She's the mother of Jesus' human body. But what an amazing woman, and, and I think we'll see um, <laughs> how high she is lifted up in, in, in eternity. But either way, the focus is, is Jesus. It's not Mary. It's, it's not some other saint. It's not Jesus on the cross. No, Jesus is resurrected. It's not Jesus in the arms as a little baby of a woman. No, don't minimize Christ. Christ is resurrected. So he came into human body. And now some of you may think that after he died and rose again, that was the end of his human body. He went back to being incorporeal. No, this is the point. He is corporeal for eternity. Remember when doubting Thomas there in John 20? And remember when Jesus in Luke 24 comes to the two guys on the road to Emmaus? In both of those cases, he says, am I just a spirit? Touch me. And then he said this, Does not, I am not a spirit, I am flesh and bone. And then, of course, in Hebrews, he says he now shall be our brother forever. That is, in this human body, Jesus' body is now a human resurrected body. And the Bible says exactly as Christ's human body was transformed into a heavenly body for all of eternity, the same with us. In heaven, we see there in, in Revelation 4, he was on the throne as a lamb had been slain. Not too many things from earth will last for eternity. But you know what will? The scars of Christ. Not to humiliate us, but to remind us over and over again of the great love that God would come into human flesh. And human flesh, he was 100% God. He wasn't lesser than God. He was 100% God, but he's under the authority of his father. Jesus said, the father is greater than I. Again, the Greek word is very specific. It's not greater in substance, greater in quality. It only means greater in authority. That's right. The father is the first person of the Trinity. The son is submitted to the father and the Holy Spirit will never speak unless he hears it directly from Jesus and the father. But Jesus said, when I raise from the dead, it'll be Jesus alone that the Holy Spirit will be listening to. And so Jesus, who's the before time began, was incorporeal with the Father, with the Spirit. 
He created. He's the one who spoke. He created all things. The angels before even that. And all things were created to be under his authority and power. And then he created the heavens and the earth. And he created this earth and he created man. But he made man with a free will. And now the reality is he always has been the greatest of all through eternity. But now that Jesus came into human flesh, lives in human flesh for eternity, he will be corporeal as we will be corporeal with the scars. It's the Father's pleasure now that in the second person of the Trinity, the fullness, the glory of God would be seen through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. It couldn't be clearer. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Praising the Lord, you hear that? They're getting excited, I know, out of the mouths of babes. Um, you're getting excited, yes. Let me say it again, little one. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, listen, important last phrase, to the glory of God the Father. It's God the Father's will that all the fullness would be in Christ and the glory and the greatness, his name above all names throughout eternity. Paul's going to say it even clearer in the next chapter in Colossians 2.9. For in him, that's Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All three persons of the Trinity, the glorious part of the Trinity now is Jesus. The part that's to be lifted up the highest within the Trinity of God is Jesus. The Father's desire is that you would glorify this Son in human flesh, glorified human flesh, and that you would see Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, bow down to Him and worship Him. By the way, He's always been the creator of all things. He's always been above the creation of all things, things you can see, things you can't see, like angels and demons you can't see. Um, God's over all of the things. Now listen, and I, I, I haven't pointed out, but look at how many times the word all is mentioned or all things are mentioned in this passage as we conclude. In Colossians 1, verse 15 through 19, again, I have underlined all creation, all things. Notice this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over what? All creation. He is the preeminent one over all creation. For by him, what? All things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Notice again here, all things were created through him and for him. So in him, through him, and for him, for his good pleasure. Now verse 17, for he is before all things and in him, what? All things exist, consist. In verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in what? All things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, what? All the fullness should dwell. And you know, we learn more about that fullness, and we are going to learn more about it 
But in, remember back in John 1.14 and John 1.16, he explains the fullness. He says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacled amongst us. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's kindness, God's love. When you read the Gospels, you cheer Jesus. He's the hero. The woman caught in the act of adultery. He takes all these men with stones in their hands and humiliates them and they leave. Jesus sees little Zacchaeus up the tree. He's a tax collector. Everybody hates his guts, but I'll go to your house. I'll go eat lunch with you. The thief on the cross, he's dead and going to hell. <laughs> but he sees Jesus saying, Father, forgive him. They know not what they do. And he says, Jesus, Lord, remember when you come into my kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. We see Jesus, we not only like him, but we love him. And we realize he's the created all things, all power, all authority. All things are in his control, in his hand. And now all glory is unto him by the will of the Father. And then the final verse in John 1.16, and of his fullness, what? We have all received grace for grace or grace upon grace. You realize that's an impossibility. Because grace is all you need and much, much, much more. But he's saying, in Christ, not only did we get all that we need and much, much more, but we got all that we need and much, much more on top of all getting what we need and much, much more. He's just bathing us in mercy, bathing us in forgiveness, bathing us in kindness, bathing us in patience. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because of his love for us. Neither height nor depth nor things present or things to come, neither principalities nor powers, demons, man, angel, shall ever keep us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors. Again, how's that possible? If you conquer, that's it. How are you more than a conqueror? Because it's not just in this life, but in the life to come. And we, like Christ, are going to raise from the dead with the body exactly like his and perfect righteousness. We're going to be perfectly sanctified, holy. Not only will our spirit now want to do the will of God, but our actual body wants to do the will of God. It's like, time to pray. My knees are like bending. It's, you know, what? I, I'm not ready to pray, but my knees are. Lift your hands. I'm not ready, but my hands. My hands want to lift and worship God. Boy, that'd be wonderful, huh? Of his fullness of his fullness. All things are under him. And so again, I, I, it comes to the place where Jesus Christ is your all in all. He's above all things in him, through him, and for him. Lord, we come before you today and we just ask in Jesus' name that you would continually and always blow our minds with your love and your kindness and your mercy and your forgiveness. Your mercies are new every morning. Your kindnesses pick us up and dust us off as a million times. Not only do you forgive us 70 times, seven times seven, you forgive us 70 times seven a daily and much, much more. You, Lord Jesus, do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask or think. 
because all the fullness dwells in you. And when we come to you, we fill all of that fullness in grace and truth and grace upon grace. We feel it, we sense it, we love it, we walk in it. We want the whole world to know that they have a Savior, a Messiah. And he is just not some God with a judge's gavel in his hand. He is a shepherd wanting to grab the sheep and love the sheep and anoint the sheep and lead the sheep. That you are the friend that's closer than a brother. That you are the husband to the church, all of us together, the bride of Christ. And you bathe us daily, constantly. So we will stand before you without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. We're going to stand before your Father perfect because your mercies are new every morning. Your grace and grace upon grace is constantly in your love for us, making us pure, a bride, white as snow, without any blemish on that day. Oh, Lord, bring salvation to everyone who hears this passage today. Bring the heart of those who may hear this sermon 10 years from now, if you tarry, Lord. And they would love you more than anything. To love you, Jesus, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We thank you and love you and praise you and worship you. To you be glory and honor forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, amen.